Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. Hallelujah. Happy holidays. Happy New Year. Feast of Trumpets. Thank you, we say... We are delighted to have you here and joining us on our Erev Rosh Hashanah service as you celebrate together the Biblical Feast of Trumpets, which is also, thank you, uh, the Jewish New Year by tradition. Thank you. Hallelujah. And I also want to welcome everyone watching us on our YouTube live channel as well, joining us from home. Uh, the, as you hopefully, if you were paying attention to the service and uh, almost every piece of liturgy uh, and every song this evening and every, and every uh, reading, scripture reading, the theme of the Feast of Trumpets of Rosh Hashanah, Yom Terah, is about the coming kingdom of God, uh, the return of Messiah at the sound of the shofar. Uh, and so I'd like us to look tonight at a picture of what that coming kingdom will be like. And so we're going to start all the way at the very end of the book, Revelation 21, and we have it on the, on the overhead, if we could get the overheads up. And so I apologize, I probably started before they told me I could start, but get the overheads for up in the first, there we go, thank you, thank you, Dan. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among men and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these, are the word, these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the Aleph and the Tav, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I'll give water without cost from the springs of the water of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city. And his servants will serve him. And they'll see his face. And his name will be on their foreheads. There'll be no more night. Uh, uh, there would not be a need of light of a lamp with the light of, a, of the sun. For the Lord God will give them light and they'll reign forever and ever. Amen. Revelation 21 and 22 revealed to us the details of what, of what I'm calling the end of history and the establishment of the eternal kingdom of God. Hallelujah, right? Amen. This is where we assure the Messiah himself reigns from Jerusalem. Now, Ancient cultures and religions believed that history was cyclical. that went around and around in circles. It wasn't going anywhere. We're just on this endless wheel of time. 
On the overhead, uh, Robert Nisbet uh, wrote a book years ago called The History of the Idea of Progress, where he documents how the very idea of progress, that history is going someplace, someplace good, moving forward towards a future hope, that idea of historical progress comes from the Bible. So let's see, uh, on this era of Rosh Hashanah, uh, which celebrates the coming of the Messianic kingdom, what the Bible says about the end of history and the hope that, that, that history is irrevocably and, 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 and sorry, inexorably moving forward towards. So on the overhead, uh, we, as we, we're going to study the end of history tonight as, as revealed in Revelation 21 and 22. We're going to learn three things. We're going to learn, number one, the hope uh, that's needed, uh, the hope that they needed. Who's they? The hope that they needed, they being the original audience, the original readers of the book of Revelation. So the hope that they needed when John wrote this letter to them. Number two, the hope they got. And finally, number three, how you and I can take hold of that hope ourselves. So let's start with the hope they needed. Revelation 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. You know, it's so easy when we read the book of Revelation to forget about the original readers. Because the book of Revelation, it's primarily about the future. Uh, and so we focus on our own future. And we forget the book of Revelation was written to a specific group of people at a specific place and time uh, who were going through a specific experience. And John, the author, wrote it for them originally. Uh, of course, it's for us also, uh, but it's easy to forget about them. Uh, and we won't learn what it means for us unless we first understand what it meant to the original first century audience. And here's what they were facing. We have a summary of what the first century congregations were facing in Revelations chapter 2 and 3. We assure himself addresses seven representative messianic congregations. And in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, we see that the messianic believers were facing severe persecution. They were facing suffering. They were, they were having their goods plundered. They were put in prison. They were being put to death. And so there was great suffering coming. So, so, so how did, did they get ready for it? How could they get ready for it? And the answer is, you've got to give them hope. You cannot deal with difficulty unless you have hope. Let's put it on the overhead here. What is hope? Hope is something you expect in the future that enables you to handle the present. Hope is something you expect in the future that enables you now to handle what's going on in the present. So your expectation of the future has to be sufficient to enable you to endure and stand strong of the troubles you're facing in the present. And this future hope must be two things. It must be both uh, transcendent enough and realistic enough to help you face the present. First, our hope must be transcendent. Uh, there's a famous book uh, on the death camps uh, of, of Nazi Germany uh, called Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. Uh, he himself was a survivor of the death camps. And he wrote about how some inmates seem to lose all hope and shrivel up and die. But others were able to survive, even thrive. So the question is, why were some people able to withstand the suffering and the persecution, and some were not? And Viktor Frankl, he found that it had to do with their hope. 
what they were living for. Uh, if their hope was sufficient, if it was transcendent enough, it got them through. And if not, it, it, it didn't. So for example, if the thing you were living for before you entered the death camps, uh, if your hope was your career success, or if it was in your family, uh, living for your family, uh, if that was your hope in life, then when you got into the death camp, when you got into these camps, your hope was destroyed. Just totally destroyed. Because the death camp just took all those hopes away. So, if you, so you had nothing to hold on to. But Viktor Frankl, he talks about this one man in the death camp who kept his hope alive. He had a wife who had been deceased. And he said, I believe my wife is looking down at me from heaven. And I don't want to disappoint her. And someday I want to be with her. And I want her to be proud of me. Now, the average secular person today would think that was so quaint, <laughs> so sentimental. Uh, but it was a transcendent enough hope uh, that it got him through uh, in, in, in a way that, that secular hopes, such as, love, such as uh, living to improve life, uh, living for your family, living for your career, all these secular hopes were dashed by the death camps. But he got through because his hope was transcendent enough. Your hope must be transcendent enough for you to have, have the endurance and the poise in the most difficult circumstances. But secondly, it also has to be realistic enough as well. Years and years ago, I was trying to, couple, to counsel this young couple who were trying to turn over a new leaf. Uh, they had started attending the congregation. Uh, they had, before this, they had lived a wild life, uh, but they cleaned up their life enough to stop their, all their partying and their drugs. They stopped cheating on each other. Uh, they stopped their, their shady business dealings. They started a family. They started attending our congregation. They believed they were doing everything right. Uh, and that as they cleaned up their act, however, everything started going wrong for them, especially major health issues. And they were just decimated. Uh, they were melting down uh, because they said, we're finally living the way we ought to live. Uh, and when you're living right, your life ought to go right. Uh, so what's going on? They said, we're going to shul. Uh, we're living right. Doesn't God want us to live like this? Then why is he letting all these bad things happen to us? And I think I said, well, Yeshua lived a far better life than you. <laughs> and yet he had a terrible life. He was rejected, homeless, betrayed, tortured, put to death. And they stared at me kind of, kind of like a cow stares at a new gate. <laughs> but even though they, they had a supernatural aspect uh, to their hope, it wasn't realistic to believe that if they led a good life, they were guaranteed health and happiness and a trouble-free existence in this world. Sadly, it just doesn't work that way. A hope that will give you endurance and poise in all circumstances needs to be multidimensional. Not too mundane, but also not too naive. John wrote the book of Revelation to people who are facing or who are about to face horrendous suffering. In the book of Revelation, he gave them the hope that we're about to unpack tonight. And it's a fact of history that it worked. It worked. Indeed, one of the reasons why Yeshua faith, why Messianic faith had such, uh, so much credibility 
and why it succeeded the way it did was because the believers were able to handle death and suffering and persecution and difficulties in ways that their pagan neighbors could not understand. So, for example, the believers were persecuted and thrown to the lions. They sang hymns. They prayed for their killers. When the plagues uh, and the pandemics came, everybody else was, was fleeing the city uh, and moving out to the countryside. Yeshua followers stayed there and took care of the sick. Sometimes he even died themselves. And people looked around and said, how in the world are these Yeshua followers, how are they able to, to handle this difficulty and this suffering like this? I'll tell you how. It was their hope. And it's an historic fact that it worked. They turned the world upside down. So let me ask you, tonight, what are you facing? What's happening to you or might be happening in the near future? Whatever it is, I can tell you that uh, this transcendent and realistic messianic hope will enable you, whatever it is, to face it. So on the overhead here, that's the hope they needed. So number two, Let's look at the hope they got. Uh, as we mentioned, a hope that will get you through anything must be multidimensional. And indeed, it is. The book of Revelation, it's, it's uh, apocalyptic literature. It's a mixture of poetry and history and prophetic visions. It's filled with these dizzying images. So, for example, Revelation 21 and 22, we have, we have a lamb on a throne. We have a city, New Jerusalem, uh, in a wedding dress. That's kind of weird, right? A city in a wedding dress. Uh, but that's how apocalyptic literature works. Uh, it, it, uh, it's all these various symbols juxtaposed in a way of get, to get across uh, the richness and the multiplicity and the multidimensionality of their hope. So let me just list three examples, three symbols from this passage, though there's a lot more than three. Let's look at three things that we as Messianic believers can put our hope in because we know there are things waiting for us uh, in the end uh, as well. So on the overhead here, uh, these three things are, uh, I'm going to call a love of infinite density, personal beauty, and a fantastic reality. So first, what do I mean by a love of infinite density? Look at Revelation 21 verse 2. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say, and I saw the holy suburb, or I saw the holy rural countryside. <laughs> no, it's a city. Uh, and there are lots more people in a city than there are in a suburb or in a rural countryside, right? More density of people per square mile. Now, in our world, uh, to be filled with people, density, it's both good and bad. <laughs> Genesis 1 and 2 tells us that we were made for relationships. We were made for love relationships. That's why it says that the man and the women were naked but unashamed. Meaning absolute transparency with each other. Absolute acceptance. Uh, no blockage uh, in their relationship. And the minute that Adam and Eve fell uh, and lost their intimate relationship with God, the minute that they sinned and, and were ashamed, they had to hide from God, right? But they also started hiding from each other. They had to make fig leaves, uh, they were embarrassed because when you know there's something wrong with you, even though you want the love of the other person, you want the other person to look into your heart and see everything uh, and yet love you. 
You also know, though, that they actually saw everything in, in there. If anyone actually saw everything in your heart, you wouldn't, you would not be loved. And so now this debilitating dilemma of human nature is that we want relationships, but we're afraid of relationships. That's why John Paul Sartre famously said, hell is other people. But here's the problem. Heaven is other people. You see, we want the love, <laughs> and yet we can't have it because our relationships are filled with conflict. We have to control what other people see about us. That's what the fig leaves are all about. We have to control what people see. We can't let anyone really know who we are for fear that we'll be rejected. Yet at the same time, we really want to be accepted. We really want to be loved. Uh, on the overhead, see, to not be known, because you have your masks, your masks on, your fig leaves on, uh, uh, to not be known but, but be loved, that's ultimately unsatisfying. To be exposed and, 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 and well-known and then to be rejected, that's our deepest nightmare. But to be known fully and loved fully, to be naked and unashamed would be joy unlimited. So here's what the Bible is saying. In heaven, that's what you have. It's joy unlimited. Uh, it's a huge city, the New Jerusalem, uh, with, with people everywhere. People above you and below you and around you. And yet it's perfect love. Heaven is a world of love. The new heavens and the new earth are filled with love. It's an infinite intensity of love. That's why it's a city. You know, in our world, cities, are, they're both good and bad, but not in the New Jerusalem. Once all sin and all evil are gone, once you know that every relationship is one of infinite, perfect, deep, abiding love, then you want to be there in that perfect city. That's the first thing about our future uh, with the Lord that we can put our hope in, even today, a love of infinite density. But how is this possible? And uh, the overhead, this leads us to the second aspect of our hope. It's also a hope of personal beauty. Revelation 21, verse 2. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. So now suddenly we have a city who's a bride. There's a sense in which when you become a believer, when you become a Yeshua follower, you become citizens of a city, a heavenly city. Because the Lord is now your king. However, the Bible says the Lord doesn't just doesn't only relate to you the way a king relates to his subjects on the overhead, but he also relates to you the way a husband relates to his bride with his wife. He doesn't just want to rule over you. He wants to know you. He wants to love you. He wants you in his arms. And therefore, there's a sense in which we are not just a city, we're also a bride. And we're not just talking about being a bride in general, but being a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. The text wants us to think about wedding dresses here. Think about how beautifully everyone's dressed on their wedding day, right? Now, there are some small percentage of people who actually get married in their bathing suits uh, on, on a beach somewhere, <laughs> on a tropical beach. 
Not very often. <laughs> because most, not many brides and grooms look that good in a bathing suit. <laughs> On your wedding day, you want to look great. <laughs> and only about you know, 0.0001% of, of our population look great in bathing suits. But even for that tiny percentage of people, it won't last. <laughs> very few people get married in their bathing suits because very few people look that good. But every bride looks great in her wedding dress. Wedding dresses are designed to cover the flaws. They're designed to cover the imperfections. And this is probably an indirect reference back to Ephesians 5, where Paul says, when you enter into a relationship with Yeshua, he doesn't just become your king and your savior, but he also becomes your husband. And like a husband who loves his wife, Messiah Yeshua is making us beautiful and spotless and without blemish and the overhead. And in Ephesians 5, we're also told uh, that when you become a messianic believer, Yeshua loves you, not because you're lovely, but in order to make you lovely. And he clothes you in his righteousness. He clothes you in the wedding garment of his righteousness. So when the Father looks at you in Yeshua, he sees you as absolutely gorgeous. That's the image here of a bride dressed for her husband. Because everyone looks gorgeous on their wedding day, in their wedding clothes. And we sing about this in a famous hymn we put on the overhead. Uh, Nothing in my hands I bring. Only to your cross I cling. Here's the next verse. Naked I come to thee for dress. Helpless I look to thee for grace. But here's what's interesting. Yeshua doesn't just objectively, externally make us beautiful in the Father's sight by, by covering us externally with his righteousness, but also the Holy Spirit comes into your life. And Ephesians 5 tells us that he is making you holy and spotless and blameless and pure. The Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Messiah, actually makes you beautiful from the inside out. Hallelujah. Bit by bit by bit, he takes away your shame, your, your, your selfishness, your pride, and he turns you into a, a love and joy, gives, and he gives you humility and self-control. And then finally in the future, in the new heavens and the new earth, in the city of our God, in the new Jerusalem, you are beautiful, absolutely stunning and radiant. That's your destiny in Messiah Yeshua. There'll be nothing for you to hide anymore. Uh, the fig leaves will be gone. We'll, you will be naked and unashamed because the curse is reversed in the Messiah Yeshua. And he makes you beautiful, personally beautiful. All these images in Revelation 21 and 22, they are personal because the Bible says in the resurrection... In the new Jerusalem, you're still yourself. Uh, you're still a person. You don't give up or, you, or lose your, your personal identity. You retain your selfhood and your consciousness. You know, in contrast, many philosophies, many religions, like, like a Buddhism, Hinduism, they say you lose your individual identity and your selfhood and your consciousness after death. Remember the famous movie, The Lion King? The father lion explains to his son, Simba, Simba, yes, we die, but when we die, our bodies fertilize the ground. 
and that enables the grass to grow, and the antelopes eat the grass, and we eat the antelopes. It's all part of the circle of life. Now, someone supposedly think that, thinks that that's comforting. <laughs> this circle of life theology. Uh, that we become fertilizer. <laughs> yeah, I die, and I'm gone forever as a conscious human being, but I'm part of this great never-ending circle of life. <laughs> or some secular websites say, uh, I become stardust. <laughs> or in Buddhism, you become part of the all-soul, kind of like being assimilated into the Borg. <laughs> your individual personality and your sentient consciousness is forever gone. Uh, you're no longer you. Or in Hinduism, you're reincarnated as an animal and you have no memory or consciousness of your prior life. And all these philosophies and religions, after you die, you're no longer a person anymore. You're not a conscious self. But think about it. The best times in your life are when you are with people you love. The most meaningful times in your life are when you're with people you love. And the worst times in your life are when you lose someone you love. And so do you think it's any comfort uh, to tell someone or for someone to tell you, in the future, oh, you're not a person, you're not a self? What that's saying is that at death, you'll be stripped of everything meaningful to you forever. But that is not the biblical hope. That is not the messianic hope. John Updike, his famous American author, in his memoir, he explains why Yeshua faith was important to him. The very last chapter of his memoir is entitled, On Being a Self Forever. That's the biblical hope. That's the messianic hope. On being a self forever. Not just stardust, <laughs> not just part of the circle of life or some impersonal all soul, but being a person, being a self of infinite beauty and loving relationship forever, eternally. The person you know you ought to be, you finally will become in the kingdom of God. And as a result, you'll be part of God's eternal world of love. All right, on the overhead, let's turn to our last and third aspect of hope in the kingdom. Number one, we have a love of infinite density. Number two, a personal beauty. And then number three, a fantastic reality. Revelation 21, verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. From 1940 to 1950, if you walked into a bookstore, any bookstore in America, and looked for the fantasy section, you wouldn't be able to find anything. There'd be, there'd be fiction and nonfiction and classics and history and science and travel, but not fantasy. Today, if you walk into any bookstore in America, it's the biggest section of all. The fantasy genre includes science fiction, fairy tales, ancient legends and myths, but it especially includes lots and lots of modern fantasy literature. Why is it so big and so popular all of a sudden? Well, one man almost single-handedly created modern fantasy, J.R.R. Tolkien. And Tolkien, in addition to Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit and The, Cimmer and the Cimmerillion, he also wrote a very famous essay called On Fairy Stories, in which he tries to explain why it is that modern people who know what reality is like nevertheless have such a voracious appetite for fantasy literature and stories. 
He says, what all fantasy stories have in common, science fiction, ancient and modern fantasy, what they all have in common are these five things we'll put on the overhead. Number one, being able to step outside of time. Number two, escaping from death. Number three, love that never ends. Number four, communication with non-human beings. And number five, good triumphing over evil. These five things are common to all good fantasy literature. He says fantasy literature, it scratches an itch that we can't ever seem to satisfy. We're fascinated by any literature that depicts in a realistic way, even though we know it's not true, because we know that that's not how reality works, but we're fascinated by literature that features these things, escape from time and death, love without parting, uh, uh, communion with non-human beings, good, triumphing over evil. We love it. We can't get enough of it. Well, that's just fantasy, you say. That's not reality. Yes, we know that. And yet we can't stop reading it, can we? It's so consoling. Why? Tolkien says this is why. Tolkien says it's because we have a memory trace deep in our soul, in our souls. That's how things should be. That's what we were made for. That's how things originally were back in the garden. And now due to the fall, there's this concrete wall between fantasy and reality. And this wall remained until Yeshua came. Because the moment he rose from the dead, he punched a hole in that wall, in that concrete slab between fantasy and reality. And because Yeshua, because Yeshua rose from the dead, and if you repent and, and trust in him, all these things that you now call fantasy will come true. Fantasy becomes reality. Look, it's all here in the book of Revelation. We're talking to angels, non-human beings. There's love without parting. Uh, there's no more tears, no more death, uh, no more suffering. We've stepped outside of time and uh, into eternity. Escape from death. Love without parting. Good triumphing over evil. All five of, of Tolkien's uh, distinctives of fantasy are here in Revelation. And it's all come true. Fantasy becomes reality in the kingdom of God. And because this is all true, and because Yeshua did right, raise, rise from the dead, if you trust in him, the deepest longings of your heart will be fulfilled. On the overhead. Do you see how wonderful this hope is? So number one, that's the hope they needed. Number two, that's the hope they got. Now finally, number three, we'll close with this. How do you and I take hold of that same hope ourselves? Because people who believed in this hope, they were able to face anything. Uh, you can make this hope your own. If you could notice and enter into three kind, what I'm gonna call three kinds of languages here as we uh, have, a, have any overhead. The language of stages, the language of gift, the language of substitution. First, the language of stages. Revelation 21, verse 4. Who wipe away every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more uh, death or mourning or crying or pain. Revelation 21, verse 4 says, he'll wipe away every tear. So, so all, this, all this hope is still future. He will in the future wipe away these tears. There'll be no more death. Uh, so there's death now. Back, you know, then there'll be no more death, but there's death, death now. Uh, and, be, and, and there's crying and there's mourning and there's pain now. So this hope is future. But then look at the next verse, Revelation 21, verse 5. 
he was, was seated on the throne, said, I am making everything new. Notice it's present tense. I am making everything new. So this hope is not yet, but to some degree, it's happening now. It's here now, but not yet. Very Hebraic concept. In the future, relationships are perfect. Perfect love. When the Holy Spirit came into your life, supernatural healing of, of your relationships begins to occur now. In the future, you'll be gloriously, personally beautiful. Yet, when the Holy Spirit comes into your life, as you accept Yeshua as your Lord and Savior, you will, to some degree, begin to see these miraculous changes in your character, in yourself, right now. And when you experience this down payment on the future, that makes you so sure of the future that you can now face anything. Because you know this glorious future is coming. And you're also realistic about the fact that it's not here yet. That was the problem, if you remember the young couple I, I, I mentioned earlier. Their understanding was legalistic. They felt, you know, as long as I live a good enough life, everything should be fine right now. Same problem secular people have. You know, secular people say, you know, if we have the right people in office, uh, if we put in place the right social policies, we can overcome all our problems. You see, that's utopian. That's simplistic. That's naive. That's not realistic. It's not a realistic hope because this fallen world is not perfectible. Which is why we need to check on government power because power corrupts fallen people. But on the other hand, if you're too pessimistic, that won't help either. Dorothy Sayers shows this perfect balance of this already but not yet character of biblical hope. She wrote this back in 1940. 1940 in Britain, uh, after World War II broke out, there was, of course, all this terrible carnage uh, and the Nazi bombardment of London. Very dark time. And on the overhead, we'll put it, this is what she writes from London in 1940. She writes, so many of my enlightened, educated friends were just shocked by World War II. How could human beings do this? How could civilized, cultured Europeans do this? Well, one of the greatest sources of strength in Christianity lies in its profoundly pessimistic view of human nature. The people who are most discouraged and most despondent at the barbarity of our times are those who still cling to this optimistic belief in the civilizing influence of progress and enlightenment. To them, the appalling bestial ferocity of the totalitarian states and the persistent materialism and greed of the capitalistic societies, that's not aren't really shocking, but it's the utter negation of all they've believed. Uh, it's, at the it's as if the bottom had dropped out of their universe. The delusion of the perfectibility of humankind through a combined process of scientific knowledge and unconscious evolution has been responsible for a great deal of the heartbreak, she writes. But the biblical doctrine of the double nature of man, that he's imperfect in himself, yet closely related by a real unity of substance to an eternal perfection within yet beyond him. This makes the present state of human society less hopeless and less irrational. She's referencing the biblical doctrine of what she calls the double nature of man. Messianic Yeshua faith, it's so much more pessimistic than any human pessimism, and at the same time, so much more optimistic than any human optimism. <laughs> the biblical doctrine of the double nature of man is that we are imperfect in ourselves, uh, yet by repentance and trust in the Messiah and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, 
we can become more and more perfected over time. And this nuanced view of mankind overcomes our natural tendency to see the future of man as, as hopelessly irrational uh, and, and uh, it leaves room for a realistic, biblically-based hope. So if you're a believer, you're always ready for whatever happens. So number one, the nature of the language of stages. It happens in stages. It's already here, but it's not yet. And on the overhead, number two, uh, the nature of the language of gift. Look at Revelation 21, verse 6. He said to me, it's done. On the Alpha and the Omega, on the beginning and the end, to the thirsty, I'll give water without cost from the springs of the water of life. Who gets into the city? The courageous? The bold? The moral? That was the mistake of the young couple who, who assumed that if they were outwardly led a good life, God would automatically bless them and, and prosper them outwardly in this life. But according to Revelation 21, verse 6, who gets into the holy city, the new Jerusalem, the thirsty? You just have to admit, I am empty. Not, not look at me, how, look at what I've done, uh, how well I'm living. I've cleaned up my act. Uh, I, I've stopped my shady business practices. I've stopped cheating on my spouse. No, it's those who know they need to be saved by grace. It's those who say, I could never earn or merit or deserve my salvation. On the overhead again, nothing in my hand I bring. Only to your cross I cling. Naked I come to thee for dress. Helpless I look to thee for grace. You want to have the, the kingdom hope tonight on this era of Rosh Hashanah? Then cry out, Father, save me by your grace. By the finished work of Yeshua, the Messiah. Well, then why? Why should he save you by his grace? Look at the last part on the overhead here. Uh, the language uh, in, the, in the passages. Number one, the language of stages. Number two, the language of gift. And then finally, number three, the language of substitution. Over and over again, the text says, the throne of God and of the Lamb. Look at Revelation 22, verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Look at verse 22, Revelation 22, verse 3. No longer will there be any curse through the throne of God and of the Lamb. We'll be in the city, and his servants will serve them. You know, John could have used all kinds of images here to talk about the end of history. He could have talked about the throne of God uh, and the Son, the throne of God and the shepherd, the throne of God and the king. It could have been anything. Why a lamb? This image is hearkening us back all the way to the book of Exodus and the Passover. When people were slaves in Egypt, and God said, I'm going to send my angel of death. I'm going to send it to Mitzrayim, to Egypt, uh, my sword of judgment. Because of your sin, the firstborn of every family is going to die. You know, we live in a hyper-individualistic culture, so we don't understand what this means. In more traditional cultures, the hope of the family was in the firstborn, the firstborn son. If the firstborn was strong, if the firstborn was able, then the firstborn could lead the family, could, could keep the family together, maintain the family's status, maybe increase the family's wealth. The hope of the family was in the Bechor, in the firstborn. And God was saying, because of your sin, you deserve to be judged, uh, to, to lose all hope. So the firstborn of every family must die. But God told the Israelites, if you slay a lamb, and put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost of your house, and take shelter under and within the blood of the lamb, the angel of death will pass over you. 
and your firstborn will not die. And that's what happened. But centuries later, John the Immerser sees Yeshua walking along, and suddenly he gets it. And he says this in John 1, 29, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John says, I get it. Our sins were not atoned for by these sweet furry little lambs. Our firstborn weren't saved by the blood of an innocent animal. This was all a Torah picture of what was to come. God was giving us his firstborn, God's son. Yeshua, the Messiah, was going to die for our place on the cross, on the tree. Why? So that our firstborn does not have to die. So we don't have to die for our sins. Passover in Egypt is a picture of the gospel. We need to acknowledge Yeshua as the Lamb of God who dies for our sins, who died for our sins. And we need to apply his blood to the doorpost of our heart and take shelter under the blood of the Lamb. On this era of Rosh Hashanah, we look to the coming kingdom of God to be ushered into that great shofar blast to come. And if you understand this language of substitution, if you look at Yeshua and say, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, if you confess, Father, I need your grace, your water of grace, your water of life. And I acknowledge that it's only available, only available through what Yeshua has done. Then this kingdom hope is yours. Amen. Hallelujah. Let's stand and pray. Hallelujah. The music team to come on up. Thank you, Father. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. We thank you on this era of Rosh Hashanah for this great hope. This great hope we have in your coming kingdom, the kingdom of Yeshua the Messiah, our King. Yeshua, you are the great messianic hope. We blow the shofar on Rosh Hashanah to herald your coming coronation as King of all the earth, ruling and reigning from Jerusalem. And this future hope enables us now to face any kind of trial and persecution and suffering and tribulation and trouble in the present. Because we keep our eyes fixed on you, Yeshua. You are the author and the finisher, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. And we have this hope because in you, Yeshua, we have both perfect knowledge and perfect acceptance because you fully know us, warts and all, and yet, Yeshua, you fully love us. Only in you can we be both naked and unashamed. Only in you, Lord, is there the fullness of joy forevermore. And Lord Yeshua, your word says, if we abide in you, You love us as your bride. You want us in your arms. Lord, give us that same intense love in our hearts for you. Lord, we can be your beautiful and spotless bride only if we're cleansed and covered and washed clean by your blood. Uh, As as we repent, as we commit our lives to you, this Rosh Hashanah, as we do, you clothe us in your wedding garments, the wedding garments of your righteousness. And so now we have this great hope, this sure hope of being with you, Lord, forever. Uh, where, where we step outside of time into eternity. Where we escape uh, forever from, from, from death. We have a love that never ends. We have communion with you, Lord. And good triumphs over evil. We look forward to your soon return and our future Rosh Hashanah soon to come. Amen. Hallelujah. Amen. Hag